0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. St. Thomas Aquinas on the individuation of the human soul after death. St. Thomas Aquinas' account of the individuation of the human soul after death stands at a critical intersection in his philosophy both in the public controversies of his day and as a subject within his metaphysical thought. In Aquinas' lifetime, a serious debate raged around the philosophical understanding of the human soul. On one side, Aquinas opposed the so-called radical Aristotelians. They're also known as the Latin Averroists, figures like Caesar of, of Bourbon. He opposed them and their contention that there was only one immaterial soul and one possible intellect for all human beings. And on the other side, he opposed certain figures of the theology faculty of the University of Paris who saw a danger to the Catholic faith in Aquinas's adoption of an Aristotelian hylomorphism. So early in his career, Aquinas developed his own personal and actually quite original anthropology, where he applied Aristotle's hylomorphic hylomorphic theory to the human being in fullest measure, while at the same time maintaining the immaterial and subsistent character of the soul. So Aquinas did not hold a view found among other thinkers, influenced by Plato, that viewed man as a composite or as composed of two substances, one spiritual and immortal, and the other, corporeal and material. One of Aquinas' great achievements was to show how the human being, how man, is a single substance composed of soul and body, which are related as substantial form to its proper matter. And we've been hearing a lot about that from Father Brent already. So unlike a Platonic anthropology, the soul, according to Aquinas, is a part of a composite substance or a psychosomatic unity, as Father James was just saying. It's not an independent substance of itself. Yet, Aquinas also made his own the Aristotelian notion of the soul. He held that the soul, unlike other lower forms, is an intellectual substance which is immaterial and immortal, that it subsists After the death of its body. So, this is is interesting and it poses further questions. The strength of Aquinas' account is its philosophical explanation of man as a single unity, and I think that's where we want to place the emphasis. And it has the additional benefit that, as a Christian, particularly for a theologian, this view helps explain the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body, even if that's not its principal focus. Yet, Aquinas' philosophy of the human soul might seem to have a notable weakness. He held that matter is the principle of individuation among material beings belonging to the same species, and that a difference in form causes a difference in species. And he also consistently held the common sense view that all human beings, all men, belong to a single species. And that implies that all human beings are the same in form. So it might seem then that Aquinas would be forced to admit that once the human body dies, there would be nothing to differentiate one human soul from another human soul, since all that's left is a purely immaterial human form, and wouldn't it follow that that soul, that form must be formally the same as other human forms? So you might think that this problem would force Aquinas to abandon his view that all human beings belong to a single species or his understanding of the soul as a purely immaterial form, or his contention that human souls remain distinct individuals after the death of their bodies. And in fact, Aquinas' adversaries posed exactly this kind of objection to his account. Now, Aquinas was alert to the importance of his response to this problem. And in different texts and at different points in his career, he seems to offer different arguments to prove that human souls remain multiplied as individuals after death and also holding the other theses I've just listed. And we're going to look at some of these arguments. So the claim of this presentation today is that by Recognizing the differences among the arguments Aquinas offers to support his position to defend this unique synthesis that he achieved, we expose the common metaphysical foundation for all of the arguments, and we arrive at a better understanding of Aquinas' view of man, the human being, as a single substance. And so we come to understand Aquinas' most fundamental metaphysical explanation of the individuation, or the continued individual existence, you might say, of the soul after the death of the body. So in a certain sense, what we're doing is very important because it's a key issue if you're going to talk about the soul and understand Aquinas' unique position. On another level, what I'm proposing to do is rather modest. I'm not a professional philosopher. Uh, I'm simply trying to place myself at the feet of St. Thomas Aquinas. I think it's a, a good exercise for us at a, an event like this to place ourselves at Aquinas' feet as his students, to hear him as, if, as it were if he were teaching us, to try to enter into his mind, that is to, to understand what he was thinking about when he was trying to articulate his position and defend it. It seems to me that this kind of exercise can bear great fruits when students of philosophy, which I would suggest all of us are, read one of the great philosophers and try to absorb some of the light that his mind uh, was able to shed on an important question. Okay, so According to my kind of uh, taxonomy of the the arguments Aquinas gives on this subject, I think there are basically three categories of arguments, uh, which I'll call the relationship argument, the forma corporis argument, and the esse terminatum argument. So let's start with the first, the relationship argument. This is the most generic argument that Aquinas offers and in it, he attributes the separated soul's individuation to its relationship to its body in general. So he says that in various versions of this argument that the soul has a certain habitudo, proportio, commensuratio, ordo, or relatio to its own body. And on the handout, I've given you a representative text Uh, From the Summa Contra Gentiles, but I'm not going to read it because although this argument is interesting, I think it doesn't get us to the heart of the matter yet. It's a kind of generic expression of a more particular claim that we'll find in the other categories, Uh, but it it does fit with the other categories, I think, ultimately metaphysically. So I'm just going to sort of skip over the relationship argument and move to a closer reading of the other two kinds of arguments, which I think will bear more fruit for us. So I'd like to go to the second text on your handout. This is text B, the forma corporis argument. Uh, So in this argument, Aquinas attributes the multiplication of separated human souls to the fact that each soul, according to its ratio, its essence or its intelligible content, we might say, its definition, is only a part of the human substance. Namely, it is the substantial form of its body. And Aquinas maintains that each soul is specifically like all others, because human souls are all the same in species, but that each soul remains the particular form of a particular body, even when that body ceases to exist. Separated human souls are therefore individually distinct because they remain the forms of their own unique and particular bodies. And in that way, they're differentiated from each other despite their agreement in formal principles. So this argument first appears in Aquinas' work uh, starting with Book 2 of the Summa Contra Gentiles. So that's where I'd like to go. It's the best and most detailed instance of this argument. It's in Book 2, Chapter 81 of the Summa Contra Gentiles. So in this text, Aquinas starts off by denying that every difference in form causes a difference in species. So that's, that's a, an important claim, given his larger picture. He writes, only diversity which concerns formal principles or otherness in respect of the intelligible content, the ratio of the form, causes a specific difference. And he supports his claim, with an example. Now we're in the second sentence of the former corporee's argument on your handout. For obviously the form of this and that fire is essentially distinct, yet neither the fire nor its form is specifically diverse. And then he extends this analysis to the separated human soul. Thus, a multiplicity of souls, he writes, separated from their bodies follows upon a certain diversity of form according to substance, since the substance of this soul is other than the substance of that soul. So, he's making a move that calls for a distinction between a difference in substance, on the one hand, and a difference in the soul's essential principles. So, he's saying these are not necessarily the same thing. So let's continue with his text. Quote, This diversity, it's a diversity of souls according to substance, nevertheless does not proceed from the diversity of essential principles of the soul itself, nor is it according to a soul's diverse ratio, but it is according to the diverse commensuration, commensurationem, of souls to bodies. For this soul is commensurate to this body and not to that one, and that soul to another body, and so on for all. So just to be clear about what is Aquinas' argument, he's claiming that the ratio is the same for every human soul, but that souls can be distinct in substance because each soul is uniquely commensurate to its own body. What Aquinas means by a difference in the substance of the soul is necessarily connected to the soul's union with its body. In fact, it's connected to the unique proportion and relation between body and soul. And the remaining portion of the argument drives this point home very explicitly. So continuing with the quotation. Commensurations of this type remain in souls, even after their bodies have perished, just as their substances remain, as not depending on bodies according to their essay. We'll have more to say about this in just a minute. For souls are in their substances forms of bodies. Otherwise, they would be united to bodies accidentally, and thus something one in itself would not be made from soul and body but only something accidentally one. Of course, that's also something Aquinas very strongly denies, that the union between soul and body is an accidental unity. It's a substantial unity. It's a a profound unity. Commensuration between soul and body, therefore, necessarily follows, on Aquinas' account, from the soul's role as form of the body. Since a form is always proportioned and commensurate to the matter that it informs. And this is intertwined with Aquinas' unique account of man as a single substance, unum per se, as he says in this text, a substance composed of a perishable body body and an imperishable soul. So this is one of Aquinas' most distinctive philosophical views. And we find it front and center in this text. Aquinas also stresses, I think we should underline, that the soul persists because it has a subsistent essay in itself. More on that in a few moments. So with all of these points established, Aquinas draws his conclusion back to the quotation here. Quote, insofar as souls are forms, it is necessary that they be commensurate to bodies. From this, it is evident that these diverse commensurations remain in separated souls, and consequently, plurality remains in them. So a soul, even while persisting without its body, continues to be a form. And because it's a form, it has a proportion and commensuration to its body. And because it's a subsisting form, the soul's unique commensuration to its body remains in it even after the body dies. And so, and so human souls remain many, even when they're separated from matter. So that's the basic forma corporis argument. And Aquinas repeats it regularly in uh, different, you know, with slight variations. This is the most detailed version of it. Uh, but he repeats it regularly for the remainder of his career. Now let's move to the third kind of argument, the esse terminatum argument. So versions of this argument are also found throughout Aquinas' career. But its most detailed version is actually found in Aquinas' earliest treatment of the issue of separated human souls. So I I find it interesting, uh, when you read Aquinas in other domains as well, that one sometimes finds that Aquinas gives his most detailed explanation of a question in his sentences commentary, which was effectively like the the medieval equivalent of his doctoral dissertation. While later texts are more summary, the Summa actually is literally the summary of theology, after all, or perhaps we could say later texts are more distilled. He's thought about them more, he's been able to reduce them and express their central point uh, in fewer words. In any case, with the Essay Terminatum Argument, you find it uh, laid out in in great detail um, in the Sentences Commentary. And our text is from the first book of the Sentences, Distinction 8. So, of course, Aquinas is commenting on a text of Peter Lombard. And Lombard claims that every corporeal creature is manifold and composed of parts, and that the soul is not simple in itself. So this leads Aquinas to ask a kind of classic question, is the soul simple? And that's the context in which we find this text. It's a seemingly simple question, uh, but it does not yield a simple answer. It raises a, the whole problem of the human soul in Aquinas' own day, prompting the young Aquinas, and he's he's young and Writing effectively his doctoral dissertation at the University of Paris, it prompts him to confront an antithesis that the medievals had inherited from uh, the Platonic, Neoplatonic, and Aristotelian traditions, a kind of debate over whether the soul is either a substance or a purely material form. And Aquinas doesn't try to avoid this difficult, and actually in in the medieval university, dangerous question. Instead, he takes it as an opportunity to set forth his own unique understanding of the human soul as a subsistent form, sharing a single act of being with its body. So the corpus of Aquinas' response to the question, is the soul simple? I I didn't give you that text. Uh, We're going to be reading from one of the replies to the objections, but the main body of Aquinas' uh, reply contains two arguments. The first refutes the opinion that the soul has matter of some kind. And the second argument there is an extensive argument for the distinction between essence and essay, or existence, in all created things, including the soul. And Aquinas concludes from that, again, this is not in the handout yet, He concludes from that that because a soul is not its own act of being or its own essay, it must be composed of quod est, that which is, and quo est, that by which it is. And consequently, he concludes the soul is not simple. Uh, So only God is perfectly simple in that sense. So let me insert here a word about the term essay because we're about to talk about it a lot. Aquinas often uses this in a technical philosophical sense, and I I think that's what we're seeing in this this text. For some of you, this is going to be very basic review. Perhaps for for others of you, you're encountering this uh, metaphysical idea or this metaphysical term for the first time. So let me just give a very brief explanation. In the corpus of the present article, Aquinas writes that Essay is, quote, the very act of being itself, just as that by which someone runs is the act of running. Okay. In other texts, Aquinas says that Essay signifies, quote, the act of a being insofar as it is a being, that is, that by which it is called something existing in act in natural things. Okay, so that's just very brief background. So for our purposes, let's, let's jump right into the issue we're interested in, which is his treatment of the individuation of the separated soul. And we find it in the reply to the sixth objection. So that objection had argued that the soul can't be a simple form because a simple form of itself is common. So it wouldn't be individually distinct when separated from matter. And so in reply, Aquinas uh, concedes the major premise of the objection. He writes this, and it might be surprising to you to hear him say this, quote, there is not anything within the soul by which it is individuated. That's the first sentence on the handout for you there. There's not anything in the soul by which it is individuated. And he goes on, I say that the soul is not individuated except by the body. And then Aquinas appears to digress. He turns from the soul's individuation to its creation. And he criticizes those who assert that souls were created first and later were embodied for uh, claiming something impossible. If the soul is not individuated except from its body, ex corpore, then, quote, souls are not made multiple except insofar as they are infused in multiple bodies. And so this gives Aquinas the occasion to add an important element to his account of the individuation of the soul. Quote, but although the individuation of souls depends on the body for its beginning, nevertheless, that individuation does not depend on the body for its end so that with the cessation of their bodies, the individuation of souls would remain. Okay, so that's actually really interesting. He's claiming that souls become distinct individuals, or they, they will remain distinct individuals, but they don't get that, as it were, from, from themselves so much as from the way they come into being as the form of a particular body. So Let's see how he explains this statement uh, as he goes on. This is the next little paragraph break I've given you on the handout. The reason for this is that since every perfection is infused in matter according to its capacity, the nature of a soul is infused into diverse bodies in the same way according to their diverse capacities, not according to the same perfection and purity. Okay, so uh, we're going to kind of go through and and analyze these claims. And throughout, Aquinas keeps his notion of the soul's active being, its essay, at the forefront. So let's, let's see how he does that. So his claim is that for each human being, essay is infused into its body according to the body's capacity. In other words... Because each body has a different capacity for the various perfections proper to a human being, each body receives essay, the act of all acts, the perfection of all perfections, in a unique way, and only to the extent that it's capable of receiving it. And, of course, this is anchored in Aquinas' real distinction between essence and existence. His claim that in all beings, other than God, there's a real distinction and composition between two principles, the essence of a thing, what it is, and that it is, or the, the act of being by which the essence actually exists. So this famous essence-essay distinction we can see is connected to Aquinas's metaphysics of act and potency. That's because an act of being, essay, is pure act, and it's received in and limited by its proper potency. And so this yields Aquinas' frequently quoted uh, maxim that everything that is received in something is received in it according to the manner of the receiver. And you might be thinking that uh, right now. You're receiving this talk in your manner, <laughs> uh, and we all receive things insofar as we as we can. The point here is that each essence becomes an actually existing thing when it receives its essay, which it then possesses insofar as it's capable of participating in the perfections of being. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a human soul or a human essence. Essay is being received by a human essence, so the essay of a human being is limited. How? Well, actually, Aquinas is going to claim it's limited in two ways. First, by the human essence itself. because the human essence can only receive actuality in a certain way, to a certain degree. Human beings don't have infinite uh, infinite being, right? And then further, the essay of a human being is limited by the particular body in which the soul is created and of which the soul is the form. So there's like a double limitation here. So the soul receives essay according to the capacity and limitation of the human form and also of this particular body. Consequently, Aquinas concludes that, and to return to our text, uh, where we left off, this is just the second line of that second paragraph on your handout, on page two of the handout. Aquinas concludes that, quote, the nature of a soul is infused into diverse bodies according to their diverse capacities, not according to the same perfection and purity. Different bodies have different capacities to receive the perfection that the soul communicates, and so it seems that each human composite thus has a unique perfection and purity. And Aquinas continues, hence, in each body, a soul will have esse terminatum. That's an interesting phrase. I think it's an important phrase. Each soul will have esse terminatum according to the measure of the body. So what is he trying to claim here? It seems to me that he's saying that The essay that a soul communicates to the composite reality, the embodied reality, is bounded and limited by the capacity of the particular body to receive that perfection. Essay of itself is unlimited, and the ultimate limiting principle in the human being is the body the ultimate principle of receptivity, you might say. Essay terminatum thus seems to have a technical, metaphysical meaning for Aquinas, meaning the the bounded, limited, determined act of being of a particular soul. So if we were to think about uh, the essay of God, we would think of an essay that is perfect, complete, infinite, absolutely unlimited. And that distinguishes God's being from the essay of all created things, which are imperfect, finite, and determined. And in other texts, Aquinas also uses this same phrase, essay terminatum, to describe any limited creaturely reality. So it seems that essay terminatum refers for Aquinas to the unique manner in which the act of being is received by a limited creature, so that it becomes the act of being of this creature. So the next sentence, I think, gives us a little further clarity on this idea. He writes, quote, And this esse terminatum, although acquired for the soul in the body, nevertheless is not acquired from the body, nor through a dependency on the body, So now we're seeing another important metaphysical principle. The esse terminatum is the essay of the body, but it's not coming from the body. It's not dependent on the body. It only is receiving its unique determination according to the body's capacity to receive it. So the particular act of existence of a particular man is determined, limited, unique, because of the capacity of the body to receive it, but it's not coming from the body. It's also the essay of the soul. It's the essay of the human composite, the human substance. So a human being has only one act of being. And that's ultimately why Aquinas claims that the human being is a single unified substance. So here we're, we're getting to the roots of the claim that the human being is one, unum per se. And all of this allows Aquinas to reach the conclusion he's been working towards. Quote, hence when bodies are removed, there will still remain for each soul its own esse terminatum, according to the affections or dispositions that follow on that soul, inasmuch as it was the perfection of such a body. So a soul, once created in a body with a unique uh, receptivity, a uniquely limited and determined capacity to receive Essay, that soul remains forever limited by the capacities of that that body. So its act of being, it seems, Aquinas thinks, its act of being doesn't lose its, its limited and determined nature after the body dies. And thus, the separated soul remains individually distinct, even though it's the same in species with other human souls. So we're getting towards the end of Aquinas' text here. He notes at the end, this is the last paragraph I've given you, that this is Avicenna's solution in the De Anima. And it can be clarified by means of a sensible example. So if you feel like we've been Um, lost in abstraction. Hopefully this will help uh, make it a little more concrete for our minds to imagine. So continuing the quotation, for if something, one, not retaining its figure, for example, water, is distinguished through different vessels, imagine that it's in a clay jar, for example, then when the vessels are removed, Properly distinct figures will not remain, but they will remain only one water. So if we had several uh, clay jars of water and we smashed the the clay jars and took the shards out, what would you have? You just have the one water there. It doesn't stain the shape of the jar. So it is, he says, with material forms that do not retain essay through themselves per se. If, however. There would be something retaining its figure something that is distinguished according to diverse figures by means of diverse instruments then even when those have been removed the distinction of figures will remain as is clear in the case of wax so think now of those same clay jars being filled with wax that hardens now you break the molds the clay jars and remove the shards what do you have? You have these distinct forms remaining there. So Aquinas thinks this is a good illustration, and he goes on and says, it's the same with the soul, which retains its essay after the destruction of the body, which remains in the soul as individuated and distinct essay. Now, when we think about this analogy of water and wax, perhaps we'd want to criticize it for a kind of metaphysical simplification. After all, essay, the act of being, is not simply poured into an essence like water or wax is poured into a container. It's an an act. It's not an independent thing. Aquinas, I think, is He must be aware of this deficiency of the example. He's proposing the analogy to illustrate not the metaphysical structure of essay, but rather the multiplication of separated souls. So even though it limps as an analogy for what essay is, it does illuminate for us an aspect of the determination that a soul acquires in its body. So a soul receives its essay from a source outside itself. Think of the wax jar, or the uh, clay jar, receiving from outside of itself something poured into it. And that essay, what's poured in, doesn't have its proper shape unless it is given that configuration by what it's poured into. But once it's in that configuration, the essay, the act of being of the soul, is limited and distinguished by it. And after the body dies, the essay of the soul doesn't just continue to subsist. It subsists with that particular determination. It's the essay of that body, analogous to how wax will retain the shape of its container. So in that sense, the body can be considered a kind of cause of the individuation of the soul, but it's not the source of the the essay. Okay, Uh, we're now coming to the end. What's the relationship between these three kinds of arguments? Even though I think we can distinguish them, I would suggest that all of these arguments are rooted in the same philosophical anthropology the same kind of metaphysical thought on a metaphysical level they're focusing on different aspects of the unity of the human being a human being is not made up of two substances body and soul it's a single substance unum per se and there are at least two intertwined dimensions of this that I want to highlight here the real distinction between essence and existence of course and the metaphysics of act and potency So, angels who don't have bodies, they are only composed of esse and their essence, which is a pure form. But in the case of human beings, Aquinas adds an additional dimension to our existence and therefore to the essence, existence, distinction, the act, potentiality, uh, distinction, so this is the next text on the handout, just to kind of round things out. This is text D, where Aquinas writes, In things composed of matter and form, there's a twofold actuality and a twofold potentiality. First, matter is as potentiality with respect to form, and form is its act. Second, the nature constituted from form and matter is as potentiality with respect to its essay insofar as it is its receiver. Okay, so what do we, what do we see when we apply this to what we've been talking about, about the soul? Uh, considered in one way, the soul is the act of the body. It's the body's form. But considered in another way, the human essay is the act of the human being. And it is received in the potentiality of the human essence and also in, you might say, the lower potentiality of the human body. So the soul can be considered both as an act insofar as it's the form of the body. It communicates essay to the body in a certain sense. Aquinas says that. But the soul can also, in a sense, be considered as a potentiality insofar as it's a part of the human essence that receives essay, is actuated by essay, limits essay in a sense. So, this twofold consideration of the human soul helps us grasp the connection between these different arguments that Aquinas offers. The essay terminatum argument is considering the soul as part of the receiving potentiality that limits and determines the act of being and says that the soul becomes individually distinct through the unique limitation of essay by the potentiality of this particular instance of the human essence, that is by this soul and this body, and points to the ultimate potentiality in the matter of the body. In contrast, the forma corporis argument doesn't highlight this aspect of the soul with respect primarily to its essay, but rather with respect to its body. And considered this way, we think of the soul as a principle of actuality, as the body's form, its act and perfection. So as an act principle, the soul is rendered individually distinct by the unique way It is related to and determined by its body. In the end, I think both arguments are getting at the same metaphysical reality, just highlighting different perspectives of it. Each argument, I think, depends on the metaphysics of the other. And I think this helps us see what's at the heart of Aquinas' account of the individuation of the separated soul, the limitation of act by potentiality as it's received. And according to both arguments, the soul is rendered individual by the unique combination of the act principle with a limiting principle of potentiality. In the essay terminatum argument, that limitation is looking at the perspective of essay being received by a human composite. In the former corporis argument, that limitation is viewed from the perspective of the soul informing a body. But in both cases, we're talking about the reception of act by uh, a unique potentiality that determines and therefore individuates the act. I think, in the end, the essay terminatum argument is metaphysically primary because it's looking at the soul in relation to being, essay itself. It's from this broader perspective, of course, that Aquinas views all creatures in relation to God. God is unlike anything created because he alone is the one who is his essay, who is a completely unlimited and unreceived being. God is his essay, while other creatures are composed of essay and an essence that receives and limits it. And I think the essay terminatum argument views the soul from this most fundamentally metaphysical perspective. Now, as we move to our conclusion, let me just highlight a few concluding uh, texts of Aquinas I've given you there, E, F, and G. Uh, Perhaps I won't read them for you. The point is that Aquinas sees this account of the soul's act of being, the soul's essay, as showing us why the human being is a substantial unity and also why the soul continues after death. Perhaps we can look at the Summa Theologiae text uh, F. The soul communicates that essay in which it subsists to its corporeal matter, from which matter and the intellectual soul, one thing, unum, is made. So the essay of the the whole composite is also the essay of the soul itself. We're not talking about two different things. We're talking about one thing. This does not occur in other non-subsistent forms. And for this reason, the human soul remains in its essay after its body is destroyed, while other forms do not. And then in the very next article, Aquinas is even more explicit. This is text G. Everything has unity in the same way as it has essay. Consequently, the judgment about the multiplication of a thing is the same as the judgment about the thing's essay. It is evident that the intellective soul, according to its essay, is united to the body as form, and yet, with the destruction of the body, the intellectual soul remains in its essay. According to the same explanation, the multiplicity of souls is according to the multiplicity of bodies, and yet with the destruction of those bodies, the souls remain multiplied in their essay. So it seems to me, although he doesn't use the phrase essay terminatum, that's the idea in the background here, explaining why this soul is distinct from that one. One of the reasons that I love this subject is that when we begin to consider this one key question for Aquinas, it unveils to us uh, the truth which Aquinas says in the Summa Contra Gentiles that, quote, we can consider the marvelous connection among things. When you examine kind of in microcosm one important element of Aquinas' metaphysical thought, you come to talk about the Not only the soul's individuation, but also the real distinction between essay and essence, the limitation of act by potency, the division of all created beings according to the way that essay is received, Aquinas' emphasis of the unity of soul and body as forming a single substance, his account of the soul as the substantial form of the body, his understanding of matter as a receiving potency, his understanding of matter as the principle of individuation in material things. That seems to me to be a marvelous connection among the many things you find in Aquinas' thought. Thank you.
1: All right, we have time for some questions.
2: I'm trying to consider the implications of this in terms of like severe cognitive disability. You sometimes will hear about cases where Uh, An infant is born with very little beyond vegetative functioning, only lives for a very short period of time, would still be um, the subject of of, of baptism. Um, But it seems like the soul, I mean, we're presuming, right, there would still be a rational soul, but it's not clear what evidence you could say that there'd ever been the experience of rationality because it wouldn't have had the proper brain formation to provide the phantasms, et cetera. And yet such a soul would still be oriented towards eternal beatitude, um and obviously you could come up with similar cases in the case of severe dementia although at least those people would have past memories and so on so I'm kind of wondering <laughs> um, I, th- I think the approach you, you you offer answers a lot of metaphysical questions I'm trying to tie it in though with also the teaching on the the uh the baptism of those whose whose brains simply would not seem to have been able to uh, offer a terminated existence in such a way that they would have exercised rationality in any identifiable form, and yet they would still be ordered towards eternal beatitude. So I'm just kind of throwing it out to see maybe what you could do with that.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting and, um, and important question. There are other people in the in the room who might uh, be more eloquent and insightful on this. Uh, I know that Dr. O'Callaghan is, has a, a Thomistic Institute talk he's given that's related to this subject, um, and Father James was earlier talking about um the way that the soul can exercise its um powers in a certain way outside of the body or to what extent it can outside of the body so the soul of itself is going to be endowed with the light of reason even if the bodily uh the necessary bodily foundation for the exercise of embodied thought isn't there um so i think we want to say that you know the form, the form is there, the human form is there. These individuals are human beings. They're human persons. Uh, they have a destiny towards beatitude, um, and that God wants them in that beatitude. The fact that someone experiences a bodily deficiency that blocks some realization of the full potential of the, of the human soul um, is something God can remedy and does want to remedy. And, in fact, we all experience that in some, in some measure. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah. I think our, our human bodies are going to be imperfect and subject to, subject to deficiency, and we, we may, over time, experience the defects of that. I don't think, though, that there's any... Um, I mean, obviously, Aquinas is not trying to deal with that kind of question with, with this. He's dealing with, like, how can we, how can we articulate that this remains a, a distinct individual uh, soul after, after death, where there's not a difference in formal principles or in you know essential principles.
3: I have a question about the resurrection, uh, in particular Father Brent's resurrection. Um, <coughs> the, the, the broad question is um, whether the essay terminata of Father Brent's soul, is sufficient for any matter whatsoever in the resurrection to enter into the composition of the resurrected Father Brent. And you may be familiar with a a conundrum that Thomas um, struggles with. Um, So Father Brent's out in the woods hunting. Um, He's set upon by a bear. The bear consumes him, right? Uh, then that bear is, and so um, his matter becomes the matter of the bear. It no longer remains his matter. And then the bear is set upon by wolves. These aren't the actual animals Thomas gives, but uh, the the bear is set upon wolves. The wolves consume the bear. Now that matter um, of the bear becomes the matter of the wolves. Uh, maybe the wolves are set upon after they die by vultures. The vultures consume the wolves. Now the matter is the matter of the vultures. And then along comes somebody, say Father Raymond, and he shoots these vultures and he cooks them up and eats them um, here in the Dominican house. And so now the matter becomes the matter of Father Raymond. Um, in the resurrection, will it, be, will it be that matter? What is that matter for that matter? No joke intended. Yeah. Um, or just can it be
0: any matter? right so we we were talking about this briefly at the during the break and um i i can't at the dinner <laughs> <table>? <laughs> not not at the dinner table uh i can't I can't claim to be um i don't want to try and give a definitive word on this, but my understanding is that Aquinas's view is that uh it's not just any matter it's the your matter or the signate matter that belongs to you that's that returns and then he says, well, God in his power is going to be able to, even, it's, even if it's very dispersed, God in his infinite power is going to be able to gather it back together. And maybe that raises the question like, okay, my, if, my, the quantity, if my quantity has increased and decreased. Now, maybe, maybe this is just a misunderstanding about the way we talk about matter. And maybe that's, that's uh, I might have to rely on some people who've thought about this more um, to help me out here. But uh, if, I mean, it is Father James was talking yesterday about distinguishing between matter as quantity and matter as potency uh, or the principle of receptivity. And maybe that's part of what's deceiving us here. If we think of matter in too quantitative a term, it seems like my matter is growing all the time. Um, but maybe Aquinas wouldn't quite say that. I don't know. Would he say that I'm increasing in matter, or would he say that I'm increasing in the quantity, the accident of quantity? So the matter is is really the principle of, the deepest principle of potentiality in a material thing. So it's pushing us to, to m- grapple with that, that mysterious principle, which is not intelligible in itself, absolutely. Uh, so if we get down to prime matter, the closest thing to non-being, um, we're talking about just a a purely receptive potency, but something is only intelligible insofar as it's actual. So we we already need to start thinking about it in terms of actuality before we can really set our minds to work on it. So I think that's one of the difficulties that we have in this. I'm not sure that I've fully answered your question, but I think that there is an answer along those lines.
1: For this talk, um, I'm not a philosopher. I'm just a regular person attending, so... um, (laughs) My my question is not going to be that profound. Um, the hardest part is first time I heard about this essay, uh, Terminantum, um, and it was interesting to hear about, th- it was kind of disturbing to hear about the bounded reality and, and so I was wondering about this, the question that really aroused, uh, you know, uh, I thought it was, Did Aquinas kind of believe in predestination? Was I mean, is there a part of Catholic philosophy that is, uh, or is a better way of saying it is, predestination, it sounds like is isn't ruled out. There's some element of predestination that is commensurate with some form of Catholicism.
0: Yes, okay, well, this is a very big uh, and also dangerous question, um, which, uh, it take, would take us into the domain of grace, so I'll just I'll just say in short, Saint Paul uses the term predestination, says that we're predestined in Christ, so that has provoked a lot of Christian reflection over the centuries about what that means, um, and I think Aquinas does say that we are predestined. Now that is going to require a lot of distinctions, and he would say only predestined to good, and never to evil. So predestination is. Um, according to Augustine's definition, God's eternal determination of the graces He will give in time. Uh, so it's never for condemnation; it's always for glory. Um, but that's a different question, I think, than than what we're talking about in the gift of being, uh, which is a determinate. I mean, but when we say determinate, we don't mean um, determined as if it as if it deprives us of of freedom. For example, we're just talking about. Um, you know, like this is a determinate thing because it's, it's this particular one, it's here, it's got this configuration, this matter ultimately. I think that's, that's the sense in which we're using it. Question. I've heard that even souls in beatitude until the final judgment when their
2: bodies
3: are reunited with their souls experience some deprivation. Is that
0: true? Even souls in beatitude experience deprivation. Some deprivation because. Until they're, they're united with their souls. souls. Until they're well, united with their bodies I, at the end of time. I don't think Aquinas would talk about it as a deprivation, uh, properly so called, because as Father Brent was talking about, God is supplying other, you know, supernaturally supplying the soul what it needs to engage in its proper operation, so that. Already, the beatified soul now, you know, the souls of the, of the saints in heaven now uh, experience the fullness of glory, the, the greatest possible perfection. So there wouldn't be a privation, perhaps, except in the sense that they're awaiting the definitive uh, completion of their existence um, in glory with the restoration of their bodies. So in a sense, they are deprived uh, they're deprived of the full kind of existence proper to a human being. And yet they aren't deprived of the glory or the enjoyment of God. Oh, I just wanted to jump in on that last thing. Aquinas says that um, the, uh, a soul ex- without the body experiencing the be- beatific vision, it has everything that it wants, but it isn't able to do with that everything that it wants to do because there's one last thing that it wants to do, which is to share that glory with its body. So he makes the distinction between having the thing that you want and doing with it everything that you wanna do. And so if, whether, whether it's good to call that a deprivation or not is maybe sort of a verbal quibble, but there's that last thing that the soul desires, which is to share it with its own body.